Welcome back to Mike on Audio Podcast, everyone. Today, I'm truly honored to have a very special guest joining us for our discussion. Allow me to welcome Garrett Hongo, a distinguished professor in the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Oregon. Not only is Garrett an accomplished academic, but he is also a regular contributor to Soundstage Ultra, where he shares his deep knowledge and passion for music and audio. With a unique perspective that blends his expertise in arts and culture with cutting-edge audio technology, Garrett's insights are invaluable to both casual listeners and audiophiles alike. Garrett is also an author. He just released The Perfect Sound, a memoir in stereo, which I am thoroughly enjoying at the moment. And, uh, and reading through it, and I'm, I'm loving it. So uh, in our conversation today, we'll be delving into how someone can put together their first hi-fi system, exploring the interplay between music, technology, and creativity. We'll also discuss Garrett's journey in hi-fi and his experience as an audiophile. So without further ado, let's dive into this fascinating conversation with our esteemed guest, Garrett Hongo. Welcome to the show, Garrett. I'm thrilled to have Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. It's such a pleasure. Yeah, well, I'll be honest. When I started reading your book, I was b blown away by, <laughs> you're going to find this funny. I was blown away by the detail and wordage you use to describe audio. I especially enjoy how you compare and contrast your experiences with audio components with things people who may not know too much about hi-fi could possibly relate to. And I'll be honest, uh, Doug is actually really lucky to have you on a soundstage team. I suppose that's the first thing you and I share in common. We both do creative work for Soundstage Global. And uh, how do you feel your experience as an audio reviewer has further molded your opinions of certain components and their importance within a system? Well, it gave me a wider acquaintanceship with the highest end of high-end gear and also asked me to exercise a good deal of mental acuity in terms of being able to a describe what i hear but also to um describe uh what the gear was like and how it operated you know there's also the technical background um which was really fun to be able to uh, reveal, unravel, and in some ways boil down so a reader could s enjoy reading it. Um, you know, the techno babble that engineers and um, designers have um, is specific to their practice. And translating that into a sort of a readerly form was also an interesting challenge. What it did for me was expand the awareness of what I could hear, what I could discern. Um, and it wasn't so much a kind of critical thing or uh, a judgmental thing or even an evaluable, but it was an expansion of awareness that was the most thrilling um, experience to have in terms of reviewing. In relating to gear, uh, translating that awareness into something that a, a reader could appreciate, you know, that was, that was fun too. Um, connecting, as they say, trying to connect, having um what i discern land with someone else right well i mean a, a lot of uh people i i see online are kind of complain because they they read these articles on all of these let's say st i'll bring up a few stereophile absolute sound things like that and i i'm a subscriber myself and i get it every month and i just look at the gear and i'm like okay if i wasn't an audio reviewer and i wasn't in the industry whatsoever and I, I wanted better sound, I'd say 90% of the offerings on there are a little out of a normal, I guess, I don't know what you call normal, but a, a middle-class budget, if you, if you feel me on that. Uh, do you feel that, you know, publications should, I don't know, be more relatable with, with gear that's a, a bit more reasonably priced or, or what, what do you, what do you feel about that? Well, there are levels, you know, um, you, you can think in terms of luxury, you know, and that's what you're talking about in terms of the things that are unreachable by middle class standards. And there's also things that um, uh, a middle class person might indulge in, like someone might buy a nice car like a Lexus or even a Tesla, you know. And so 
there's that level. And then there's sort of um, the uh, lifestyle listeners. And they're all levels that are totally legitimate. I think um, uh, the wars among um, the proponents of each level to me are irrelevant, you know? I think, you know, to each his own is, is, the, is the philosophy that I take. Mine had to do with an obsession to get something I wanted to hear out of the audio experience that could match the concert experience I enjoyed, frankly, in Europe or an acoustic concert in a small club. Um, my favorite clubs in the States are the small ones like McCabe's Guitar Shop in LA, you know, where I heard, first heard Los Lobos play back in the um, late 70s. Um, uh, a small venue like old Mike Bloomfield's Keystone Corner in San Francisco or the bank in Seattle. Those are my favorite kind of places, not the huge arena stuff, you know. So so my reference was always that. And and, and I just was obsessed to pers in pursuing gear that could approximate or reproduce convincingly that kind of experience. Now, for someone who... I have a very good friend who's a successful novelist, in fact, a Pulitzer Prize winner. He's what I would call a budding audiophile who's emerging out of lifestyle listening. So he has a combination of sort of lifestyle products like uh, a name Uni, I think it's called, or Unit, where it's sort of an all-in-one thing, streamer, DAC, uh, amplifier, and all that. But he's also got some higher-end gear um, where he's just getting introduced into what um, more extreme products can do. So he's sort of a transitional listener. And we're all in that state where we're moving in some ways closer and closer to different degrees of obsession and pleasure. I, I feel you on that. And actually in your book, I, uh, I got a chuckle out of it because you don't, <laughs> I don't think you agree with it, but the, the, the playboy mentality that you mentioned in the in the first part of your book where a lot of people in the past you know when when playboy was actually relevant um they you know it was cool to have that two channel high end luxury system it was you you compared it to you know like having a, a luxury car or or having your favorite drink um and that kind of spoke to me because i feel like there's a huge percentage of the audiophile community that that kind of resonates with that but you had a different a kind of mindset and could could you would you mind explaining that yeah it's sort of um two different kinds of emerging classes in the 50s that was post-war um men who had income that they could dispose easily with uh, or of um you know the hefner thing um sort of upper middle class or lower upper class uh, who needed to cultivate a kind of image and uh, ideas of luxury. Um, you might call them the elite or managerial class, you know. That was not the class where my father emerged. He was a GI returning from World War II and the culture that they practiced was that do-it-yourself culture of uh, building electronics from kits through mail order. And um, when I was 10, 11, and 12, he would spend evenings assembling these different kinds of kits first a heath kit and then a dyna kit you know he made a a keith hit a heath kit system and then a dynaco system and it was fascinating to watch him do this little theater every night of laying everything out with all his tools and doing looking at the 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 the, the blueprints or the guides and then soldering things up it was sort of magical and um i was sort of his helpmate i would you know give him things or arrange things or go fetch things. And it was a way for me to participate in um, this fatherly life that he was he was demonstrating for me of building something for himself. And they were, these were the guys who, who couldn't buy things outright, who'd do things on layaway or monthly payments. They were aspirational. And in those, in those days, stereo was a kind of portal to a larger world that they, their own homes couldn't encompass because they were so small, tract homes or apartments and things like that. 
And so it was a way for my father to go back and listen to the swing band music that he fell in love with as a GI, you know, uh, Glenn Miller, Harry James, Tommy Dorsey, yeah. and the dance halls, the USO clubs he'd go to um, in Honolulu and um, abroad, you know, he was a soldier in World War II in Italy. Um, and it gave me an entryway into a wider world too because of that. Not only because of the history that it meant, but also the music. I mean, he would listen to Hawaiian hotel music, you know, tourist music, um, um, old time Hawaiian stuff from the 40s, you know. Um, he would also listen to swing band music, but things that new that came along, like uh, the soundtrack to The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I remember one afternoon he came home from work with this very funny looking LP with these cowboys on it, and he put it on, and it was shocking, you know. First of mm -hmm. all, it was stereo, and it was like an orchestra, and there were all these unusual instruments, and I remember that afternoon and how it pleased us both that there were all these incredible sounds in a different world. And um, little did we know, of course, that The Good, The Bad, and Ugly was based on samurai films of Kurosawa, but uh, that's another that story. Now, now, was this coming from the the? I think you, I think your mother called it the lime green monster, or the yeah. The... <laughs> My father went to woodshop class at night at the high school and built this huge um, wooden um, box on four <laughs> legs. It was extremely deep. It was supposed to be the base of a stereo system. He had an Empire three ninety eight. And as I said, the Dynakit um, preamp and amplifier. And he had um, these university box speakers that he put, placed in the living room, one on the mantelpiece and one on a lamp table. And, mm -hmm. and inside the Green Monster, I think it was about a five by four cabinet. All the LPs would be in there. Mm -hmm. And also my grandfather's uh, whiskey. And oh, uh, you know you had to go, you had to go in there and 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 flip through the box to find the right album. But it was so deep, there were things that got buried in there. You know, like uh, albums we never played, like Hatari, and uh, I don't remember Hawaii calls. I suppose. Man, uh, I'll tell you what: people should definitely be reading this book to get inside of your mind a bit. Um, but could you tell you know my audience? a little bit about how you got to where you are today and the journey from Hawaii to California and then to Oregon. Like how, how did that uh, come on? I, I know I'm, I'm sure I'm, that's probably unpacking a lot of stuff, but if you can just kind of, kind of let, let us know well, how you, how you got to where you're sitting right now. <laughs> I'm a fourth generation Japanese American. It was my great grandparents on my mother's side who emigrated from Southern Japan to the cane fields of Hawaii. And that's pretty much uh, the history of the first two generations of us in the islands. I was born on the big island where the volcano is. In fact, in the village of Volcano. My uh, paternal grandfather had a general store there, um, the Hongo store, and my father ran it when I was born. I was actually born in the back room of the store there. Um, things sort of petered out in terms of lower middle class life in Hawaii or working class life. And my mother and father decided that he should get a trade, um, electronics. And so he went to LA trade tech for a year. And then he brought us all over from the islands. I was living in Haula on the North shore of Oahu with my mother and brother. And we came to uh, LA in 1957 and I grew up there and went to college nearby. And, um, um, like that, I, I found myself uh, in a career that was academic, but also as a poet. I'm As a writer, I'm mostly known as a poet. And it meant I took university jobs at Missouri, uh, California, Texas. And I finally ended up in Oregon because it was the closest I could get back to in terms of being on the West Coast near Hawaii and LA. So that's how I ended up in Oregon, and this has been my main academic career. I was in love with music um, 
from a very young age, I wanted to be a musician, but I tested so well, my mother decided I should concentrate on math science and took me out of boys glee and guitar lessons and, and all that kind of thing so I could be more academic. But it was always a hankering. In high school, I listened to, you know, doo-wop music, sang it. And uh, uh, in college, I, you know, bought records like everybody else. But when I tried to embark on this career, I, I gave it all up because I, I knew I couldn't afford it. Mm. It wasn't until um, very recently, or fairly recently, around 2005, um, that it struck me again, the bug of, of having to have stereo music because I was in Europe and um, on my honeymoon and and and, um, and we went to La Scala and I heard La Boheme, that opera about the Bohemians in the Latin Quarter of Paris in the 19th century. And the music was so transformative and also the lyrics, you know, I'm a poet, so I responded to that incredibly grandiose romanticism of the arias in, in the Puccini opera. Um, and it just brought everything together, music and poetry and the struggling life I had as trying to make it as a young artist. I was very moved. I wanted to know more about the genre. So I, I came back and I decided to kind of build a stereo system to try to reproduce, of all things, opera. Well, I had no idea that might be the most difficult thing to try to do besides orchestral music. But um, it took me about two and a half years until I got closer to what I wanted to hear. And I got there. Several, you know, changes of equipment, systems, questioning, questing, pestering people, friends, dealers, um, audio reviewers. And then I, 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 I built a base of acquaintanceship where I could start guiding myself to what I wanted to hear. Um, mm. That that's the hardest thing I think for for an audiophile or a beginning audiophile to understand is to what is it that you want to hear? How do you want to hear? I was divided because one of the strongest memories I had was of my father's stereo system, which was that Dynakit uh, one, which was which is fairly lush. Um, in, in today's vocabulary, you would say it was colored. It may not have been the most resolving, but it was incredibly involving and lavish. To me, I liken the sound of that system to the lapping waters of a lagoon in Hawaii. It's very alluring and attractive and gentle and involving. It's still one of my reference points. But the other pole of reference was live operatic music, which is extraordinarily resolving and dynamic and, and demanding, particularly of electronics. And that took me in a different direction than that romantic Eddie-like sound my father created, you know? Mm. So I had to learn my way through those two different wishes of mine, which were in some ways subconscious and be able to discern the difference. And it took listening to a lot of equipment, um, traveling, um, trying to understand, and then finally understanding that what I wanted was somehow um, a combination if possible, but with, with, the, with the heavier leaning towards the resolving and the dynamic and the, and the kind of um, subtlety that, that vocal music demands. And so that's the system I started building. But it took me about two years to identify that track, as it were. You, you have you. to be I patient with yourself as an audiophile. Um, very little is instant, you know, I think. It's like with any pursuit or hobby, it takes practicing. Even though it's in some ways you could call it passive practicing, it's still practicing and you have to be patient with yourself. Well, I, I did notice that in your book, you're a bit of a fan of classical music and opera. You, you you don't hide it very well. So, which I'm assuming you like other genres as well, but would you be willing to, and this is just a, a, a really strange ask, would you be willing to create like a, I don't know, a short playlist that I can post in the description of this video of your favorite classical and opera tracks so that people like me who are novice to the genre 
and usually just stick to soundtrack soundtrack scores um, can enjoy some of your favorite picks because I feel that you have a really good grasp on that genre. And I'm, I feel like I'm missing out on a lot of amazing music because I don't really have someone to say, Hey, take a look at this and this and this, and then tell me what you think. And then of course, once you put it into, you know, the new streaming services, the AI just kind of goes, goes crazy and, 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 you know, recommends other things for you. But yeah, would you be willing to do that for me and, and, and kind of create a oh, small playlist? Absolutely. I could even create an integrated playlist where I have, you know, rock and roll and jazz and blues and even Hawaiian sure. music. on. Um, I listen to all of it. I listen to, um, you know, I, on the plane back for, I was in Florence, Italy, uh, last month for about three weeks and, you know, it's, I don't know, 18 hours on airplanes. So one of the things I did was I listened to some of those music movies, you know, or watched them. I saw one on Radiohead, which I'd always heard about, but I never play, paid any attention to. It was very fascinating um, what those guys do in terms of combining different genres of music, like trance, a club, um, you know, uh, electronic but also uh, grunge and all these different kinds of sounds. And I I had this crazy idea. I said, you know, what they're doing is like what Mahler did with the symphony, <laughs> taking German folk leader, weaving it into melodic um, structure, into its variations, and then mating all of that to a full orchestra. And I said this to somebody, and they looked at me like I was crazy. Radiohead and, and Gustav Mahler, but I really don't think so. Um, it's about taking your moment of listening and then creating something new. And I think Radiohead and Mahler both did that. So maybe I have an essay. Maybe I have something incredibly stupid. Who knows? Honestly, I, it's funny you say Radiohead. That's actually one of my favorite uh, groups to listen to. Actually, I, I use one of their songs as reference when I'm actually testing equipment because it has the ability to really challenge uh, the soundstage and the, the dynamics and the, you know, the frequency range. Um, so, yeah, I, I actually I'm a huge fan of Radiohead. I also, also like Nine Inch Nails and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think... I, th I think you and I will have a fun. Maybe we could trade playlists, you know, and learn yeah. from one another. Radiohead creates a kind of immersive sound environment. That's number mm -hmm. one, you know. And within that, there's so many things to talk about. Um, you know, we could talk about it till the cows come home. But I, that's what I found <laughs> when I listened to them and saw the method of composition. So I was quite impressed and interested. But, you know, like I say, I listen, one of my classmates from college was the founder of Los Lobos, you know. My brother is a blues guitarist. Um, we, in high school, we gravitated to the Chicago blues very early, you know, mm -hmm. but also the British blues, you know, like Peter Green and John Mayall and uh, Fleetwood, early Fleetwood Mac, you know. We listened to all that kind of stuff, and uh, I still do. I feel you. Um, now, uh we were talking about, uh, you know, helping each other out while reading your book. I noticed that you have or ha had or have a hi-fi mentor named Peter. I have one as well. His name's Mike Galusha. I, I wouldn't be as knowledgeable as I am today without his help. I hope that, you know, well, I hope that didn't come across a little crass to my audience. But before I had a chance to learn from Mike in retrospect, I feel like I was a bit green when it came to amplifier topology and many other disciplines within the hobby. Now, is that how Peter sort of guided you as well? And would you recommend that people interested in the hobby find their Mike and Peters in their life? Yeah, well, you know, my friend Peter is an extraordinary man. He's a sort of Renaissance fellow. He has a PhD in the Renaissance, in Renaissance literature, English Renaissance literature. He was a surfer, guitar player, singer, uh, he was a guy who first gave me my first job, academic job. Um, and he's also a poet. He knows he, he built, um, he basically built his own house, hand built it. You know, he, he, he can do everything. Mm -hmm. And he was an audiophile. I, I house sat for him once. He lives in Laguna Canyon down in California, uh, Laguna Beach. 
And he had this great stereo system. And it was very intricate. The instructions gave me on how to operate it. And I, I played it, you know, um, and he had all CDs. And, it, you know, that was really fun. And I forgot about it. When I wanted to get back into audio, I, I, I called him up and asked him all these questions. And then he sent me like a 16-page email detailing what to do, what to listen for, and how to go about it. It was sort of step by step. It was an astonishing document. And um, what happened was he I bought his CD player, which was a Cal Audio Lab CL15, if some of you remember that. And it rocked my world. What it could do just blew me away. Uh, I'd never experienced listening like that before through an audio system, where there was a soundstage, where there was imaging, where there was layering, where there was so much great flow. And it just knocked me out. I, I wrote about it in the book about the first tune I put on, which was an Ellington tune. And um, I called him up and he was very amused with me. What he did was he sort of advised me about each aspect of um, the hobby, you know, uh, electronics, cabling, um, room treatment or room suitabilities. And he moved me away from what my notion of audio was, which was basically consumer electronics, like big box stores, you know, um, into a specific audio kind of componentry, but also a more discerning way of listening. Um, a more patient way of listening, not only in terms of any given session, but through years and months of how much your hearing would tutor itself as you gain more experience. And and that was what he gave me. He, he gave me a much of that. I will also say that he, his listening and mine are quite different. His preference is basically rock and jazz of a certain kind. Well, mine, as you know, is is classical, operatic, and my systems are tuned to to play back that kind of music more than the punch and the sparkle of rock you did. So some of his advice in terms of gear wasn't quite apt for me. I think um, he recommended an American kind of speaker um, that just was wonderful when I played rock and roll like Cream and steely dan and things like that you know but it just couldn't play opera it, it couldn't play choral music it was awful and it wasn't until i found italian speakers by sonus faber i went oh this is it this is it this is it violins that don't screech that don't blur that don't sound like flutes that sound like violins and i entered that world for a while you know I, I have reviewed a couple, a few uh, Sonus Faber of their, you know, entry level stuff, and I was blown away. So I can only imagine how much better it gets, and and that's something I hope to uh, experience myself as well one day. But uh, you know, I feel like community is a big part of any hobby, but also I feel like it's lacking in the world of hi-fi. Would you agree that the Mike and Peters of the world? The, you know, the harbingers of, uh, of hi-fi knowledge should be more proactive on sharing the wealth of knowledge with the rest of the world? Do you feel like people like that should be uh, actively sharing with, with, with new novice people that are just getting into the, into the hobby? Well, it has to do with the, um, the kind of matrix of exchange exchanges that are available. Reviews, blogs, uh, what are those other things called? Forums. Mm -hmm. They're all gravitated towards a kind of quick hit, you know, um, and it's not the way for myself that I like to listen to music. I don't listen to tracks. I listen to whole scores, you know, whole album. Um, it's not a quick hit. And the, the advice that matters the most to me takes time to uh, absorb, even articulate, and also then to test out. So it's a different time dimension that's needed with people who are really great mentors and advisors. It's just like any other kind of artistic practice. It's about 
finding the rhythm of that exchange that's beneficial to the rhythm that you're developing. And it's not suited to the instantaneous exchange. Um, the model I have in my head, there are two. One is classical Greek, Alexander and Nestor, Alexander the Great, who was tutored by a centaur, a genius centaur, you know. And it was a long adolescent uh, apprenticeship, let's say. But in also in the Eastern culture, particularly in Japan, the relationship with ma between master and disciple is years long. And it's more of a, a friendship, more of a, a familial kind of relationship. It, it's not a capitalist exchange. It's not an instantaneous exchange. So our, our matrices, our matrices, that we have readily available are not to me suited to the most solid kind of development. You know, it's student teacher. Um, it takes time. Uh, mm -hmm. And I have other friends in audio, uh, one very close friend, he's sort of my buddy up in Portland and we exchange stuff almost every day, just talking about things and exchange visits all the time. Um, and I have another Don in Los Angeles who's a dealer and a, importer and he, he's my analog guru in many ways he has much wider acquaintanceship with things particularly in the past than i do and um i take lots of guidance and also joy and in, in um, learning from him but none of these things you know are are fora are not suited to that kind of ongoing thing that i value the most um one reason I think I wrote my book was to explain how this is a sort of lifetime experience, you know, a journey, as you put it. And that journey is not the quick hit. Um, and it's not simply uh, instantaneous gratis gratification. It's also the accumulation of awareness, knowledge, and in some ways, humility, as you live with something that I wanted to emphasize, you know, and what it brings to you in terms of how it radiates to all the other aspects of your life, how music is tied to moments in your own life, how you remember those moments by the songs that were there in the air at the time or on your uh, uh, heavy rotation, as it were, um, how uh, music then leads you to other kinds of awareness, you know, and, and that's what I was trying to put across. It's not simply, spend something on a hi-fi and then get off to work, you know, after your cup of coffee, even though that's okay. You know, I do that too. I have a little sound bar that I, I do that with my coffee, you know. One thing that really stuck out uh, at me was the fact that uh, we were actually, and I'm totally changing the, the subject right now. Um, we were only a year apart in age when our fathers passed away. I was 33 and I know you were 32. Uh, not a day goes by. I don't think about my father. And from what I've read in your book, it seemed like you really, really valued the time you spent with him, helping him with his amplifier projects, you know, as his official sound tester. And I know you mentioned that he had, uh, he had poor hearing because of certain, uh, you know, uh, tra trade jobs he did, uh, you know, uh, uh, back, back in his early days. And I, I thought, I found that very endearing and actually touched my heart because, I know I had my experiences with my father that I spent with him and, and it was really special to me. And I know you, you mentioned it was only for, I think one year that you sat there and he would ask you, you know, how does that sound? And how does that sound? And then he'd go run and get another pair of tubes or, or change out a, a capacitor or something. And he's like, okay, how does that sound? Was that your first real experience with not, not only having a dear experience with your father, but, but it was that your first time learning that certain, even the smallest adjustments in an amplifier can make a sonic difference that could be pleasing or not as pleasing to the ear. I know that's a really loaded, loaded question right there. No, you know, it was, um, it was an interesting experience because my father, as you say, you know, was losing his hearing and, um, Things were in some ways not as acute to him as they are to a young ears, to young ears. So he would ask me to inform what these different changes sounded like. And then he would sort of go the way I would explain. 
Um, the other thing that was charming, I suppose, was I had to translate it all into Hawaiian pidgin English because that's the language he understood. So we communicated that way. It's a kind of Creole, uh, abbreviated language. And, and it was a pleasure to do it and a challenge. And I was just involved with my father. You know, it's one of those things when you're a son, you want to be with your father. And this was a way that I could, that he mm -hmm. valued. And it was an exchange of love. And those are so important. They sort of set the better part of your nature for the rest of your life, you know. And that's what happened to me. It, and it was, again, a kind of building of the education, knowledge, and awareness that small changes in electronics could make diff big differences in hearing or discernment or quality of sound. Of course, I didn't think of it that way then. I thought of it as, oh, what does this sound like? To, how can I tell my father? I'll tell you a story. It was about my sixth or seventh month being deeply involved with trying to get my audio system to work. Um, uh, the first winter after I came back from La Scala in Milan, uh, and I decided that I needed to have tube equipment. I had bought solid state first, and it didn't give me what I thought I wanted to hear. It just didn't do it, you know. It was all right, but it wasn't luscious. It wasn't lavish. It wasn't completely beautiful the way I knew arias and opera sounded like. It didn't unfold, you know. It, it sort of hit you fast, you know. So somehow I got this notion, I'll, I'll try tubes. You know, I'd heard, you know, the arguments between sand and what is it, glass and sand amps, you know. And so I, I decided I had to have a tube amp. And I called up Kevin Deal at Upscale Audio, uh, who uh, let me buy uh, this really great prologue amplifier, an integrated thing from uh, China that was designed in the Netherlands, I suppose. And I just had to have it. I got it in there and it got me close. It got me really close. But what it also did was when I got it was all of a sudden, that's when I remembered those evenings with my father when I was 10. Because I hadn't thought of it in all those years. Um, it just wasn't part of my awareness. And the flood of memories about serving my father just all came back to me, all those evenings. And then the other thing that hit me was, oh, he was doing this so he could hear his music for the last time before his hearing completely disappeared. And it just hit me like a tidal wave. I was so moved by this peaceful desire that he expressed with so much patience and really the monumental thing he was trying to achieve for his own life because he did ultimately all lose almost all his hearing. But he was doing this just to hear his music for the last time. And I thought, what an honorable thing. And what an honorable thing that I was able to accompany him. And all of that is part of all, that is also part of my hobby, that um, what I'm doing is still listening for him. You know, in my room, I have his speaker. I still have it. It's, it's part of the end of the book. I write about it. But I also have a photograph of him at his testing station. He was an electronics technician for Lear Siegler. And I have um, a couple of his old audio tubes that I found in his uh, caddy, you know, when it, when I cleared out my parents' garage after they both passed away. I know you mentioned in the book that uh, you made a shrine uh, to him when you when you first put together your first hi-fi system. You pulled out a few items like a like a transistor radio he used to use to hear the 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 horses uh, the horse races while he, you guys were watching a baseball game i i, I, yeah. I actually I, I retained a lot of stuff from your book because i found it so endearing and and i was very empathetic because of your experiences and and i saw a lot of you know similarities with our lives so for me it was it oh man it really it really hit me hard 
And uh, just because I do have a few of my dad's belongings that I kept because I'm not the kind that I, I mean, he didn't have a lot of stuff to begin with, but I wasn't trying to get uh, everything I could. I, I, I wanted certain things that left an imprint like his wallet. Uh, you know, he always used the same wallet and the same uh, wristwatch. And I wanted to keep those things. And and I know you had a few a few mementos that you you put up on your on your uh, first hi-fi uh, stereo system. That, that, that was really nice to hear. Yeah, I mean, I've got that radio on my windowsill right now, and I've got his Sony Watchman, and I've got his um, gambling hat um, over my CD case back there. You know, in as Americans, we're inured from keepsakes in some ways and also heirlooms and the ideas or the manifestations of legacy. Um, in Europe and in Asia, you know, that's it's a normal practice to have these kinds of uh, material objects of homage and remembrance. Uh, we're in some ways a culture of erasure. And then Europe and Asia are cultures of preservation, you know, like walking around in Florence. I mean, come on, you know, Firenze, <laughs> you know, the Uffizi Gallery with the Michelangelo and the Cimabue and I mean, Come on, you know, and, and the the Capella Rancacci with the Masolino Masaccio frescoes. I mean, my gosh, you know, fourteenth um, century stuff. It's still there, you know. Um, when I was living in Japan, I lived in a temple. I would look out in the garden. I would realize that the garden is older than the United States of America. The garden outside my door here. We express that in very small and intimate ways with family treasures, I suppose. But they're, they're so circumscribed, you know, they're not expansive. And in some ways, we're reluctant to share their items of homage, but they're, they're private and intimate objects of, of that kind of remembrance. We don't have that kind of larger um, so social honorings. They're, 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 we don't have completely the monuments, the ceremonies that have built uh, the human heart in the same way. That's why we could still be tutored by other cultures like Asia, Europe, and the indigenous cultures. And, and from honestly, from what I've studied, uh, Japanese people take their hi-fi extremely seriously. And it's unfortunate that I read that uh, to buy like a CD or, you know, um, any, any type of physical media, it's considerably more expensive there than it is here. However, a lot of the audiophiles and folks here, including myself, like to have Japanese, uh, you know, pressed uh, items like CDs and records and stuff like that. Um, yeah, with the little sash. <laughs> do, the little sash on the side with the LPs and also the CDs, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so do you chalk that down to the, dis the discipline of the culture that they – really enjoy you know hi-fi as a hobby and they go all in rather than in western in the western culture where we're kind of very fair weathered and and give me convenience you know give me streaming let me you know uh, do you feel that there's a huge uh, i wouldn't say divide but a, a, a huge contrast between both cultures when it comes to hi-fi well, I would say audiophile culture in the States is the, one of the closest things we have to Japanese culture practice in, in America. You know, the kind of maniacal obsession, you know, devotion even. Um, but in Japan, there's a, a culture of precision, acuity, patience, and economy. And the economy part is, is that that's what's missing from us because we're large in terms of space and people. The private spaces in Japan are very small, the apartments, the houses, the jazz kisa, the shops, the, the tea shops, the coffee houses, even the jazz dives they have in Japan. If you have a large one, it's it's looked down upon. It's not really a kisa, it's not really a dive, you know? How can it be a jazz club if it's too big? You know, that's like, for Japanese, it doesn't make sense, you know. It, it has to be this intimate experience, but the but the, also the sort of conjunction or overlap 
or crossing of a culture of precision, patience, and acuity with the goal of building precise and lavish sound is a wonderful conjunction. And you have that together in the artisanship of the culture, building the, the um, SCT amplifiers, for example, you know, uh, cartridges for another, um, class A amplification. All these really great things are coming together. Oh, uh, extraordinary tone arms, you know, the Ikeda, which is the continuance of musical fidelity. And then the great companies we have, Esoteric and Luxman, the larger companies, Sony, the, even they exhibit the kind of artisanship, respect for tradition, but also the the value of, I would say, listening pleasure. You know, they, they, they've all incorporated that to different kinds of degrees in all of their production and practice. In terms of the, the, the lifestyle in Japan itself, you we have these insane DIY folks as well. You know, they kept SCT and tube amplifiers alive all those years while the United States turned away in the 60s and 70s from tube to solid state and from subjective listening to um, measurement testing, you know. Japan kept alive all our old tube equipment, you know, all the old um, SCT amplifiers improved them, simplified them. And they were kind of a lab for the continuance of that tradition in, in, in those days. We have uh, uh, Kondo Gakuon, uh, uh, which is uh, started as audio note, but divided with Kondo. We have uh, Axe, we have um, Airtight, uh, Luxman, Accuphase, you know, we have all those great Zandon Japanese companies that produce great electronics and, and all their audio gear. You know, I spent time in the culture. I, I lived in Japan after college for a year in a very traditional environment. And um, one of the things I learned to do was slow down. You dig? And, and that was a valuable lesson. I, I actually read a book about slowing things down because, and this was, gosh, this was... Uh, probably 10, 15 years ago, probably 15 years ago that I read this book. And it, it talked about how, I mean, and, and I know it's only gotten progressively worse over the years, how we live in such a fast paced life, you know, how, how this, the, the social construct of our lives right now are so fast paced. And so, you know, gimme, 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 uh, I need, I need, I need, instead of sitting down and, and enjoying the moments that we have, you know, and I, I feel that's an important, that's a very important thing, especially with hi-fi that, you know, if you're really, really interested in, in creating your first hi-fi system, people have to understand this is, this is not only a hobby, this is a lifestyle, you know, this is a lifestyle that we're getting into that, you know, will, will define your, you know, inevitably your, 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 your listening pleasures for for years to come now there's there's a passage in your book that <laughs> that kind of made me laugh but uh it says that electronic synergy that will play arias from puccini and donizetti that can make a grown man weep see that's the kind of system i want my see my system can make me sniffle a little bit but i want a system that will genuinely make me weep and people probably think i'm messing around right now but when okay. you hear when you hear your favorite musical piece in a way that just moves you, you know, it's more of an emotional and just wonderful experience. What are your, what are your thoughts on achieving that well, type of system? You know, it's, it's to enjoy the presence of art or the visitation of great art. You know, one of my favorite songs and performances is Who Knows Where the Time Goes by Sandy Denny, that Irish uh, folk singer who, who, who uh, led the group Fairport Convention that um, guitarist Thompson, Richard Thompson came, emerged out of, you know, it's his guitar that accompanies Sandy Denny in this piece. And it's just gorgeous no matter what. And you want, or when you want to hear Marvin Gaye sing um, Mercy, Mercy, you know, it's a moving experience and it takes its time, you know? It's like slow cooking movement in Europe you want to learn to be able to savor the small movements of the human heart as it moves through 
the articulation of this art, this music. And each fluctuation, each nuance uh, hits a different note, a different glint in your emotional system or awakens it differently. It's like when you drink French wine. I'm sorry, y'all. There's a difference in drinking American wine from French wine and sometimes. And I'll, I'll tell you the difference, okay, you dig? There's an unfolding of the experience on the palate when you drink a Bordeaux that goes from front to back. And then there's the bouquet, the aftertaste, and the sort of what's left after that. It's it's a it's a it's a kind of small sonata of 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 taste, the experience of taste. The California Cabernets are so fruit forward, they just blow up in your mouth that first impression. And that's what basically what you have, a sort of seawall, tidal wave, or a, uh, the wavefront, you know. Mm. And so you're sort of shocked after that. And you don't really notice you want to eat the meat or the spaghetti right away because the, the, the experience was so um, shocking. But in the French, it's just a slow wave of an unfolding, as I say. It's like the movement of smoke in the air or silk in water, you know. And that's what, to me, the greatest art is also like. It is this unfolding. And Sandy Denny's song is this way, Marvin Gaye's song. Or when you hear uh, Rodolfo in La Boheme singing Suave Fanchula or singing about when he was a, he's a poet, you know. You have to match what you want to hear with the kind of gear that can do that, it takes an advisor to sort of make that evaluation and estimation. I try when people ask me, I, I end up being the informal sort of audio guru to a lot of writers because I'm a writer. They know that I'm crazy about audio. So they all come to me. And the first thing they all want is they want something cheap. <laughs> they don't want to, they don't want to spend the money, you know, they, they all think I'm crazy. So, so, and the other thing they are is embarrassed, right? But, so this is like, we all are. We, we don't really want to spend the money, but we're also embarrassed about how cheap we are. So here's my recommendation. Really think about what it is that, in terms of the musical, artistic experience that you want in the space that you want it. And then, give it a budget, like how much you want to spend for a car. You know, like I bought my daughter, who's 17, her own car this fall. My sons wanted me to give her my car, but which is an old dad car. You know, it's a Toyota uh, Camry, an O2, by the way. It's that old, you know, because all my money's in my audio equipment, right? Not a car. <laughs> um, um I, I set a budget, you know, like 10, 12,000 bucks. And then that's what we shop for. You know, we looked at a mini, used Mini Cooper, a Prius, all these other things like that, you know. And it had to also be suited to her because I didn't want to give her like a dad mobile, like my Camry. So I looked at Fiat 500s, Ls, uh, Mini Coopers, Prius, that kind of class, you know. Um, that would suit her. She's a very petite person. She sort of dresses well. She's a good student. You know, it suits her personality. All those things come into play. That's how you need to make an analysis of yourself. What is it that you want to hear? How do you want to hear it? What kind of music do you listen to? And then set the budget, you know. For me, I quested after the music first and the budget later, you know. Mm. I didn't know what it was going to take. I remember when Peter told me it took is going to take $450 to buy his used old 10-year-old CL50, California Audio Lab CL50. I thought, wow, that's a lot of money. You know, I was thinking in terms of a Sony uh, CD player for 215 bucks. You know what I mean? Right. And I, I, came, I said, okay, I'll, I'll give it to you, but I'll give it to you in two payments. Right. So I did that, but it rocked my world. It changed everything. And right away, I wanted to get an, an amplifier, then a set of speakers. And, you know, I spent $1,000 on the amplifier. I spent 2000 on the speakers. It just blew my whole idea because it gave me a new experience. This is the kind of um, transition period that you need to be watchful about.
because this will change your parameters. When that happens, you have to reset. You know, it's just like having a, a sports team and you're a GM. You know, you know, you figure you're going to be a third place or fourth place team. And all of a sudden, the rookie shows up and transforms the whole team and you're a championship contender. Well, you, then you want to win the championship. So you go out and get a couple of uh, players at the trade deadline, right? And you spend the money that it takes or the capital that it takes. This happens as well. And a good advisor can can, can sort of accompany you uh, as you go along or even a dealer. Um, dealers, you know, are very good. Uh, on the West Coast, I know many, and I think they're very good. Um, and they have their customers' best interest at heart because they're, they too are playing the long game. You know, they want mm. to stay with you and grow with you and have a clientele that is loyal and um, that they can count on as well. So they're not looking for the fast turnaround or the fast buck, you know. I don't know them in the Midwest and East Coast as well, so I don't know, but I know many on the West and I, I like and I trust them. Good, good. Um, yeah, no, getting having a, a good you know, resource for, for hi-fi is definitely a good thing. And, and especially when you're dealing with honest people that will kind of guide you the right way, you know, know your budget and know what you want and what you want out of your system. And, and they kind of, kind of guide you They're They're, they're there for a reason. But one subject I wanted to touch before we finish up was, uh, Bunraku was a term you used mm -hmm. in the book that, to describe the experience of hearing something through your hi-fi system in contrast to experience it, it, it live and in person. Uh, could you tell the audience how you felt the philosophy of Bunraku applies to hi-fi? Well, Bunraku is the puppets from the, it started in Osaka. Um, and rather than act live actors, of course, they're hand puppets. They're very, they're half size hand puppets. It takes two people to operate them. Uh, someone who does the head and, and one arm and the other one who does the legs and the other arm. It takes two essentially masters. And, you know, I, one of my early Japanese literature and language teachers was a translator of the Bunraku. And he schooled me in this. And he said, at first, you know, you're struck by the artificiality of the presentation because the voicing is done by a singer on the side who speaks for the puppets, you know, uh, called a Dayu. And you're given this plethora of, in some ways, disjunct artistic presentations. These wooden puppets, wooden and cloth puppets, uh, the, 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 the two masters, they handle the, the handlers who are dressed in black, the Dayu on the side and the shamisen uh, string player beside him. And you're asked to integrate that into an artistic experience. Um, and it's very disconcerting at first, but once the story takes over, once you get involved with the characters, once you know the movement of the emotions and the, uh, um, the uh, mounting of the conflict and then its resolution, you're carried away by the presentation, the mimetic present presentation of this of this, this drama and, you know, whether they're two lovers fleeing their fate or fleeing towards mutual suicide or a sword fight or a noble encounter between a baron and his vassal, you, you're, you're swept up in it and you forget about the artifice and you enter instead into the artistic language and the artistic experience. And I think that's what's going on in stereo. Um, it wasn't something I intended to say, but I was writing about listening to stereo music for the first time in years. And then it just struck me that it was very much like Bunraku because you're presented with all this equipment in front of you and all these the electro, you know, electrical maneuverings and minutia. And yet when you put it all together, you're given an artistic experience, an experience of pleasure an experience that affects the heart. And that's what you live in, you know? Um, and when you when you get that, that's the system for you, if you know what I mean. Um, so when I was mentioning Bunraku, it was an analogy and it feels like a very, very odd, culturally dissonant analogy, but it was the only thing I could come up with to explain how 
one puts together an emotional and artistic experience with so many disparate, in some ways, disjunct elements, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I, I found it to be quite insightful because it's, for me, what I got out of it was, you know, uh, comparing a live performance to, you know, listening to the same song on your system. That's kind of what I got from it and how I, I translated the, you know, the the bunraku to to what we're we were talking about but yeah i i really i really like that passage and i think a lot of people will as well uh, and fi final question I, I know we're uh, running running over time but uh many audiophiles uh you know not not all audiophiles but a lot of audiophiles stick to music of the past and don't really explore the offerings of the present could you share with me your specific process for new music discovery? Like how, how do you discover new music in, in today's world? Well, there are lots of ways. You know, I have two grown sons and they listen to different kinds of music than I do. They bring stuff, mostly I don't like it. You know, <laughs> it's just that if my, my younger son likes punk and, and oh, my wow. older son actually likes R&B, but he also listens to things like Cake. And um, I can't remember the name of that fellow. Dave Matthews, you know, mm. and they, he listens to that, but he also listens to a lot of old R&B. But I, I have friends in audio, and I visit them regularly, and they play me great things. My friend in L.A., Dan Meinwald, you know, he, he has a great acquaintanceship with world music and jazz and classical. He's always playing me something I never heard before, you know, Ali Akbar Khan or um, uh, an obscure L.A. jazz musician. I mean obscure to me but you know um and i go out and get the record right after that you know we listen to a stravinsky recording of um uh the life of a soldier and it was a re revelation it was an old um it wasn't everest it was one of those other older labels and somehow we discovered it he got it in a swap meet or something and then my friend george up in portland he listens to mostly jazz, but he's always coming up with stuff I'd never heard before or R&B, you know, and I pick things up from them. But really, the other thing that I do um, besides watch music videos on international flights is I subscribe to Kobuz and it has this, you know, uh, new arrival stuff. And I always check right. it out. You know, I check out, um, you know, I would have to say the classical stuff operatic stuff first but i always check out you know hip-hop or rock or jazz as well and sometimes it's a reissue of like an old sonny rollins go west lp that they have all these alternative takes to and mm -hmm. some of those alternative takes on that album are astonishing and to me much better than what was on the original album because the original album spent so much time just playing the head, which is to say the repeat of the melody, but his improvisational extensions and the alternate takes are incredibly soaring. Of course, there's no space for them on the original album, but now that we have digital, mm. they can reissue that, they can issue that. So there's a there's a new take on, not St. Thomas, um, it's an old cowboy song, you know, that Rollins liked. And the improvisation is astonishing. I just wrote about to a friend of mine who's a saxophone player. And, you know, I'd always disliked the sort of cowboy music that Rollins did. I did never own Go West, but I listened to it because I, you know, it came up. It was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And that's how I get it. I get it through friends. I get it through Cobuzz. I get it through my kids. Um, sometimes I get it from FM music. You know, I'll listen to a new new thing on the radio. I'll hear something on, on NPR. And and I'll and I'll I'll, I'll go chase it. Uh, an audio friend who was a dealer in Southern California asked me about twelve years ago to listen to a video, a YouTube video, that one of his cousins made, mm -hmm. and it was uh, "I Want You Back," you know, by Lake Street Dive. It was their first video. I was blown away. I've been a fan ever since. A lot of times it happens just by happenstance. You know, you, you're at the right place at the right time. You discover something you're really going to like for years to come. Yep. It's, uh, it's incredible. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show.
it's been it's been a great conversation. I would love to have you back. I especially want to have you back after I finish the book as well. So because I'm sure I'm going to get so much more if I if I got as much as I got from what I've read so far, I can only imagine how deeper the rabbit hole goes and how much more fun I'm going to have with it. So uh, I definitely recommend anybody out there looking for a good read. The Perfect Sound. It's available on Amazon. I got mine on Amazon hardcover. Um, wh where else is it available, Garrett? It's in all the it's all the outlets, bookseller, um, Barnes and Noble, your local bookstore. Um, uh, audio uh, dealerships are starting to carry it now too. Um, the paperback has just been released. So oh, wow. uh, I, and I'll be appearing at Expana on Saturday, April fifteenth at noon in the um, uh, convention center or listening hall, whatever they have going there. So come and find me at Expana if you're going to be Expana. And I'll be uh, giving a short talk and maybe a short reading and doing a Q&A and signing books there. Saturday, April 15th at Chicago Expana. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip on Expona this year, unfortunately. But next year, I'll probably be there. So hopefully we can meet there. But Perhaps I'll send you, I'll mail you my book so you could sign it for me. And, uh, and I, oh, definitely love to want, I definitely want that. Um, so I want to thank uh, everybody for tuning in to Mike on Audio Podcast, of course. And a huge thank you to our incredible guest, Garrett Hongo, for sharing his wisdom and insights with us. Uh, I've had a truly enlightening conversation, you know, touching on the nuances of arts, culture, and the ever-evolving world of audio. Uh, now, make sure, like I said, to buy a copy of his book. Uh, all the links will be in the description below and definitely check out his insightful contributions on soundstage ultra. I think that's going to be something that you guys might really enjoy because his writing style, Garrett's writing style. I know he's right here, but I'm, I'm like talking to him like he's, he's like, he's not here, but his writing style is very, very intriguing and it kind of pulls you in. It's not dry. Like a lot of, you know, other audio reviewers are, it's not, it's not, uh, technical. It's not, uh, clinical. It's, it's just very, uh, relatable and warm and fun. And, and I, I enjoy it. So as always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider subscribing to my channel on YouTube and leave a like to help me reach even more people interested in audio. I would love to hear your thoughts and any suggestions for future episodes. So feel free to connect with me in the comments below or visit my links in the description where you can find me on Discord and all the socials. So thank you again, Garrett, for being on the show. It was a pleasure and uh, I hope to have you on again soon. Hey, thanks, Michael. It was great for me. I, I enjoyed our conversation and, uh, you know, being on a podcast is a sort of a new experience for me. Well, get used to it because you're uh, this, this is going to take you far, my friend. This is good. This is gold right here for anybody that's interested in a good book. So um, yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's stay in touch and we'll, we'll see where things go.